not too long ago, maybe even this week, I was sitting at our kitchen table with my laptop open doing a little work when I heard a loud, shrill, blood-curdling scream coming from our backyard, which of course immediately scared me and worried me and prompted me to jump out of my seat. Uh, And I was headed out the door when what I heard uh, was this loud tirade from one child to another, which assured me as I ran toward the door that No one had lost an eye or lost a limb or lost a mouthful of teeth or been impaled by a pogo stick. Instead, it was just one upset child venting or voicing her displeasure at another child. Nevertheless, I dashed out the backyard and found our youngest in tears and in full bore screaming at another one of our kids because she was upset about something. Again, somewhat relieved because I felt like this situation was something that I could handle and I would not need to call the police or the paramedics. I began the process that any good parent begins of de-escalation and calming everyone down and coming to understand what had happened and how everyone was going to get through this and to eventually be okay with each other and on the same page again with each other and able to happily play with each other once again and in the very near future. In a word, we call that reconciliation. And while reconciliation may not be a term that we often use, reconciliation is something that you and I often need. Because there is in many of our lives, or most of our lives, or maybe all of our lives, discord, and so division, dissension, and so disunity, sin, and therefore separation in some form or another. And most of the sin and separation and the quarreling and shouting and the anger and the animosity cannot, most of that in our lives cannot be allayed or assuaged or dispelled by a dad running out into the backyard to see what's going on and to attempt to resolve that thing. And so we learn, we have learned, and we continue to learn to live with separation. Unsure of what to do with the divisions that we encounter and experience sometimes in our lives, we dig in our heels not knowing what to do with the problems and the pain or lacking the will or the courage or the position or the power to be able to put things back together in relationships that are fractured. We are like all the king's horses and all the king's men who just have no way to put Humpty together again or to put those fractured relationships together again. We become accustomed, I think, to living with discord and division and so disunity in the form of grudges that go on for years, in animosity toward acquaintances, broken marriages, church splits, vitriolic politics, gang shootings, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, genocides around the world still today, wars, and so on. 
We are immersed in divisions and separations and not just between, among, and with one another, but also with God, which undoubtedly is the source of and the reason for our separations from one another. Having a fractured relationship with one's maker leads to fractured relationships with other people. Fractured relationships with one's neighbors. And so it should come as no surprise that the words reconciliation and reconcile turn up a number of times in the passages of Scripture, which we will see this morning as we read again in Colossians. But first, let me pray real quick. God, we ask that you would... Help us to set aside our worries and the distractions and the things in our mind, our prejudices, our biases, our predilections. Give us ears that are good to hear your word and your words, eyes that are good to see you and your kingdom, hearts that are good in fertile soil. Plant within us uh, the seeds of your word that will grow and bear fruit and flourish and bring you glory and bring us joy. I pray and ask ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray from your word in any way, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. As I've said before and say again, there's great value in reading books of the Bible straight through from start to finish as they were written and as they were intended to be read. Doing so gives a person, a reader, each of us, good context for understanding that, uh, those uh, passages of Scripture rather than taking things out of context. And so we want to in- continue to encourage you to read uh, Colossians in context. If you miss any messages during this not so short series. I encourage you to listen in online or through our podcast and catch up, keep up along the way. You may want to just, as part of your own reading uh, during the week, during your life, read portions of Colossians. Read the whole book periodically. Reading the entire book of Colossians may take you about 10 or 12 minutes. You can read one of the chapters, one of each of the four chapters in two, maybe three minutes apiece. So be encouraged to read Colossians in context, to follow along uh, as we're going through this series, uh, you will get more out of it. Uh, Colossians is only four chapters long. It's a little book, a little letter from the Apostle Paul, but it really is this deep, deep well that you can dip into over and over again to find refreshment and to find truths for your mind and your spirit that will refresh you. So I encourage you to do that. Turn with me now to chapter 1, verse 13. If you want to follow along in a pew Bible or it'll be up on the screen, we read this verse a couple of weeks ago. It's Paul's first explicit reference in Colossians to a theme that we will see more and more uh, through the book and as we get to verse 21 this morning in which Paul mentions over and over, listen closely, uh, reading from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Uh, This is the word of God. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption. In other words, the forgiveness of sins. And then comes Paul's hopefully now familiar to you song or poem in verses 15 to 20 that may be the centerpiece of the book of Colossians and one of the most important statements about Jesus in all of the scriptures. Verse 15, the Son, in other words, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, as we talked about last week. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn. Prototokos is the Greek word there. From among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all God's fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And having said all of that about Jesus, including that through Jesus God reconciles to himself all things, which we talked about last Sunday, and explicitly mentioning Jesus' blood and Jesus' cross together for the only time in Scripture. Paul continues, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of the evil behavior, your evil behavior, but now, that was once, but now, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, a subtle jab at the Gnostic ideas that Jesus could not possibly have been God and had a physical body. But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If and as you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And Paul cannot be clearer about the Colossians' relationship with God and so also our relationship with God. Speaking in the past tense, Paul states, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, And while none of us have probably ever thought of ourselves as enemies of God, that is, in a sense, who we have been, Paul says, because of our evil behavior. And I know the word evil sounds really strong. Nobody likes the preacher to be saying, you're evil. You're evil. It's harsh. We don't ordinarily think of ourselves as evil. We, if we do... uh, want to live in denial instead. We want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We want to think, well, if there is some evil in me, then it is negated by all of the good that I do, by all of the good that I am. Certainly the good things I do, have done, will do, wash away all of the bad things. I'm not really evil. And so the word evil feels strong. We do not accept it, nor do we accept softer synonyms for evil like immoral or corrupt or even gentler words than that like rude or greedy or self-absorbed or self-serving or self-centered or self-focused or proud or impatient or uncaring or judgmental because none of us are any of those things. And because if we did accept that idea, then we wouldn't be able to deny that we really are enemies of the God who is love. If we accepted the idea that we were evil or that there's evil about us, then we would have to accept also the reality that we are enemies of God, against God, adversaries opposed to God, the God who is love. 
The reality, though, is that all of the evil that makes us enemies of God and that is collectively called in a little word sin has separated us and continues to separate us from the God who is light, the God in whom there is no sin, the scriptures say. You know that darkness and light cannot, by definition, coexist, be in the same place, be together, be in one person. But if that is the case, and it is, how can we who have chosen darkness be reconciled to God who is light? This is not a simple or superficial matter. We have not only sinned against one another, but also against the author of life, the one who created all that is, and the one for whom all has been created. We have defaced the image of God in one another and so deeply hurt and offended the one in whose image all people are made. In the words of King David, after he had seduced, or worse, a woman who was not his wife, and then had that man killed, wrote these words, against you, you alone, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He had seduced a woman who was not his wife and then killed her husband and said, in retrospect, against you, God, the creator, the one who loved both of those people, the one to whom all of this belongs, against you, have I sinned? Am I an enemy? How then can a person who is a sinner or divider of people or a separationist who defaces the image of God in other people be reconciled to this God? A parent or a teacher can settle a dispute between two children and help them play again. A counselor or a therapist can sometimes bring two people together and help save a marriage. The words and the ways of Jesus and prayer and spirit-empowered love can sometimes change adversaries into friends. But what happens when the transgression is egregious or enormous or ongoing or infused with unrepentant hate or catastrophic or fatal? What happens when the transgression that leads to separation is against God, resulting in separation from God? How can a person then be reconciled in such a situation? We believe that God is just. It's a basic foundational tenet of our understanding of the nature and character of God. We believe that God is just. And truthfully, frankly, honestly, we would not be interested in a God who was not in and of himself committed to justice. The word means what is right. Justice, what is right. God is just, and justice in God's big economy, his cosmic economy, must be served. Justice must be carried out. Crimes require punishment. Offenses necessitate penalties. Wrongdoings require restitution. If a player in this morning's Women's World Cup championship game, and don't tell me the score, please. <laughs> if a player in this morning's Women's World Championship, World Cup championship game, fouled another player, 
And especially if that was done so in the penalty area and the referee didn't pull out a yellow card or a red card and call for a penalty kick, we would all be up in arms, wouldn't we? Yelling, that's not fair. Because we have this internal longing for justice. We believe it, we know it, it's written on our hearts and in our minds because we are made in the image of God who is just. And so how can a person whose list of offenses against her creator be reconciled to God? In the words of Jesus, with man or humanity or people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And in the words of Paul in Colossians 1, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. God has done it and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of those offending sins. It is God who does this, and God has already done this. God's action is primary. Our action is a distant second in importance, though it certainly counts. But God's action is primary. Paul continues in verse 19, for God was pleased, not reluctant, but pleased through him to reconcile, through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace somehow through his blood shed on the cross. It was through Jesus that somehow God reconciled to himself all things. And notice here and throughout the Bible that it is not God who is reconciled to people or to things, but people and things who are reconciled and brought back into relationship with God. Always. It is creation, the pinnacle of which is humanity, that has separated itself, ourself, from the Creator who has not wavered in His holiness or faithfulness. And it was through Jesus' blood shed on the cross that reconciled all things to Himself in the death of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, in whom all the fullness of God dwelt, the one about whom Peter wrote, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And John wrote, in him was no sin. On the cross took the place and the punishment of humanity for our sins so that this justice that we love might be served. And Paul would later write to the Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness or justice of God. And why did God choose to do things in this seemingly brutal, archaic way? I don't know. If there's another way, I would have voted for it. The cross is intolerable. It's hard for us to look at when it's not... uh, created into an ornate art, art object with jewels on it and beautiful colors. The cross with a person hanging there bleeding and in agony is hard to look at. If there was another way, I would have voted for such. And while much of this cross punishment thing 
seemed so foreign, strange, unnecessary to us. It made all the sense in the world to Paul and to Jewish background people like him. For hundreds and really thousands of years, the Jewish people, according to God's guidance in the book of Leviticus, would once a year on what the Jews call the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, take two spotless lambs, unblemished goats, without blemish, without fault, without sin, symbolically. And the first one they would kill, the high priest that year, would take into the Holy of Holies and kill and shed blood and in that way make atonement for the community, first for his own sin, but then the community and then the sins of all of Israel. Shedding blood on behalf of all so all wouldn't have to. And with the second goat, they would do this other thing we read about in Leviticus 16. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, their evil, all their sins, we read in Leviticus, and put on the goat's head all of these things symbolically. He shall then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness forever. And through this act, illustrating what the author of Psalm 103 wrote, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us through a lamb. And what John the Baptist declared of Jesus is relevant. John said more than once, there is the lamb of God. He is the lamb of God. The, not a, who takes away the sin of the world. And God wrote, and God, Paul wrote in verse 19, was pleased to do all of this. And then verses 21 and 22 today, once you were alienated from God, once you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, Without blemish, Paul wrote, which brings to mind how that goat was, how that lamb was, how Jesus always was, is now laid upon us and free from accusation. To present you holy in his sight without blemish, as far as God can see. That is how a person who is in Christ appears to God. Paul declares, if and as that person continues steadfastly in their trust in Jesus, in their clinging to Jesus, in their reliance on Jesus, and in his gospel of grace, which is really amazing. In the words of the 16th century reformer Martin Luther that are on the front of our bulletins this morning, Christ took our sins and the sins of the whole world as well as the Father's wrath on his shoulders, and he has drowned them both in himself so that we are thereby reconciled to God and become completely righteous. And I want to add two caveats to what Martin Luther wrote. 
First, reconciliation is not some cold, impersonal business transaction, as it could seem to be, by which some official legal or liturgical relationship is stamped legit, valid, paid in full. Rather, reconciliation may be understood and really must be understood to be more like the reunion of two formerly quarreling children or the embrace of two friends after years of enmity following a betrayal or a husband and a wife treating each other with tenderness instead of disdain or a person approaching God knowing that God has completely forgiven him or her with no strings attached and wants nothing more than to fill his or her life with his abundance, his goodness, his riches, his love, his grace, his joy, his fellowship. Do you see the difference between a mechanical, liturgical, business-like, clinical reconciliation and a whole different way of looking at reconciliation. In the words of Wayne Jacobson, Christianity was never meant to be a list of principles or rules or laws to which we conform our behavior. It is, Christianity is, life in Christ is, living reconciled to God in active communion with Him every day. That is caveat one. The second caveat is this. God invites us into this life and this realm of reconciliation. And we see so clearly in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians how Paul articulates this in broad ways. Our reconciliation is not only with God in heaven. It is not only vertical, but it is also horizontal because it is all-consuming, because God is all-consuming. So to be reconciled with God necessarily also means to be reconciled with one another. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, In his second letter, these words, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And so he has committed to us this broader message of reconciliation. In Ephesians 2, which is, uh, Ephesians is kind of the sister book to Colossians, written by the same person, Paul, at the same time from the same prison to another community of people. Paul goes into great detail about how the Gentiles in particular were separated from God without a covenant, without hope, without citizenship. And how God in Christ brought them together with the Jews and united them all with God making one community where there had been two. Communion, fellowship, life together, reconciliation. And Paul says that this reconciliation that we enjoy with God is not only available, but is necessary horizontally as well. And so when Jesus says, when you go to the altar to offer your offerings, and you still have something against someone, stop and go and be what? 
reconciled to that person. Reconciled to that person as we have been and are reconciled to God through the cross of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. I know that many of us here need to be reconciled to other people. I know it. And I'm not going to say don't come and celebrate communion this morning if you are not yet reconciled. Leave, come back tomorrow. We won't be here tomorrow. So don't not participate in the Lord's Supper if you are not reconciled to someone in your life. But take care of that business today and this week. As you have been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ and His cross, so be reconciled to the other people in your life. That is what God wants. Not the disunity, not the lack of harmony, not the division or the discord or the separation, a.k.a. sin. But be reconciled. God has given us the power and the will and the heart to do that through His Spirit. Let's pray. God, we pray with Martin Luther. You have made Jesus the sacrificial offering for us. He took on himself what was ours and placed on himself and placed on himself the penalty for our sin. Remind us of that. Compel us to be honest about our situation. We confess and acknowledge our sin, our sinfulness, our brokenness, our offenses, our transgressions, the ones that can be called evil, and the ones that seem so much milder and inconsequential. The ways we are, who we are, how we are. We thank you and praise you that prior to any action on our behalf, any idea, any initiative by us, you stepped out of the realm of your majesty, took on flesh and blood, came and became like us, one of us, with us so that you might bear the penalty of our sin, our brokenness, our disregard. Heal us, forgive us as you have and as you promised to do. Make us whole, continually reunite us with yourself and with one another for our pleasure, for your glory, for the well-being of your world for whom Christ died. 
for the coming of your kingdom today and tomorrow and the next day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.